I grew up with a blue, <clears throat> blue, a bluegrass family, and we would constantly go to this bluegrass festival called. Um, it was in Bean Blossom, Indiana. It was Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Festival that he like originally. It's the longest running bluegrass festival in Indiana, or it may be for like in the bluegrass community, honestly. Um, so we were there one summer camping, and it was getting to the point where it was like sunset, maybe like seven fifteen. How like, old are you in this story, by the way? Maybe twelve. Okay. Maybe 12. 12 years old. It's a ripe age. Yeah. and Odd choice of words, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. Ripe for the picking. Ripe, ripe Josh Norfleet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we would go to these bluegrass festivals every year. And uh, it was the, uh, there's this artist named Jimmy Martin. And he's uh, considered the king of bluegrass. Um. And it was about the time where, like, his set was coming on. And he, Jimmy was, like, older at this point. This was, like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> he died, like, this ne- like the following year after this performance. Okay. Poor Jimmy. And uh, I'm walking towards, like, you know, the stage area, and I hear on the PA system, like, Jimmy Martin has started. So I'm like, oh, fuck, I, I need to get going. He's already on the stage. So I'm darting through this park area that has no lights on it. And I nail this teeter-totter. And <laughs> like catapult, I swear to God, three to four feet. Like insane pain. I like get through up. the air? Oh, yeah, dude. So you just launched. Oh, yeah, dude. I literally was just ru- full-on sprinting down a hill through a playground. And it was this weird teeter-totter that was like, I don't know. It wasn't even like a, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It wasn't like a, a regular teeter-totter where it was just like a singular. Like just two sides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was like this like rocking kind of teeter-totter thing that just like stays on the ground and kind of shifts this way. Like, you know that boat uh, at those fairs? Like that yeah, ride that yeah, swings yeah. back and Yeah, forth. it was kind of like so that. So you basically like tripped on some weird piece of plastic and just right. fucking tumbled. And went like four to five feet, dude. Like, it, was, it was something so, crazy. Okay, I have a question. So you tripped over the teeter-totter itself. Yes. And when you tripped, did you fall on it, and then it launched you through the air then? Or how, how did it happen? I'm trying to picture it in my mind. I was, like, running towards it. I'm going to, like, do this while I talk. I'm, like, running towards it and went like this, like forward. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I, it literally just knocked me forward this way. Yeah. Right, so I think you like got caught on it, and as you're tripping, it was moving with him, and then sort of right. launched him. You know what I mean? Oh, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I fly. That's some forward. Johnny Knoxville shit. I yeah, know, yeah. Dude. Can you <laughs> picture that as a video? Yeah. You see? And I like as I got up to the ground, I got up from the ground. I was like, "Holy shit, that fucking hurt, dude!" And I like touch my like shin, and I notice, and I'm like bleeding, and I go back. Uh, to go to like our campsite, and my mom's there, and I'm like, I fucked up my leg, and they're like, holy shit, and took me to the hospital. I had to get like four to five stitches, I think. What did your dad say? He honestly didn't even go to the hospital. He stayed. Yeah, he was, the he, he watched the show. Yeah, dude. So wait, you saw the show? No. Oh, okay, you were that fucked up. I was that. Okay, yeah, okay, I didn't okay, get okay. to see the show, and he died. But that's that's year, dude. Hey, that's a that's a party injury, man. We've all yeah. had party injuries. No, you know for sure. I mean? That's not too bad, too. 
You have one other bluegrass festival story about your dad. You know the one I'm talking about with the guitar? I do, bro. You already tell Yeah, that tell it. I was at the same festival. Um, How much time had passed? Was this at the same, the same time or was this a couple years later? Maybe the year prior. Okay. Right, I would 11 say, year old Josh Norman. Yeah, I would say still around that age group. I uh, was with a, a friend of mine named Stacy, who was a banjo player. And um, we were at, jamming at this campsite because at these bluegrass festivals, that's just what they do. They literally start playing bluegrass music with other people in their tents and campers and will do it until the sun rises the next day and they just fucking party. And uh, we were with a bunch of people, like with my dad, jamming, playing music. And uh, I was playing my dad's Martin guitar, his 1974, 5, or whatever it is, Martin D35 guitar. And I set it like in its case next to him at the same jam and dipped to go run around with some other people. And I came back to the jam site. My dad was like, where's the guitar? And I'm like, what do you mean? I sat it right there by you. And he was like, I don't have it. You had it last. Where is it? And I was like, holy shit. And I was like, the, it sunk in that I lost the guitar that I like learned how to play on. And my dad's like guitar that my grandpa got for him and brought down to him. And I was like, holy shit. <clears throat> I felt like dog shit about it. I, cry, I cried all, all like th- the next day, I remember. And... Maybe like midday through the next day, this guy pulls up on a golf cart with the guitar. And he told, like, told me, he's like, we were just fucking with you. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And then he was like, my name's Jimmy Martin. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you should come see me play sometime, kid. <laughs> uh, so he almost lost his guitar. Yeah, dude. Damn. So your dad was trying to teach you a lesson. Yeah, he taught Damn. me. The, he like, we knew the, it was the owner of the park. Okay. Who, who like was in on it with my dad and they were like he just left it here let's act like it's stolen so he knows never just to was he uh, was your dad egging you on the whole time was he like i can't believe you lost the guitar oh, yeah dude oh yeah bro yeah. It, it, and let it go a whole day like a whole at least 12 hours like, did he just keep bringing it up yeah oh yeah man he would call my mom or he call my mom josh lost the guitar or some shit did you learn a lesson i did i, I honestly did learn a lesson i will say josh norfleet he always knows where his shit is and he never leaves it unattended to anytime we go out anytime we play a gig anytime <laughs> we're doing anything he knows where everything fucking Boom. is. Yeah. That's why. Honestly. That's why. Because you, you lived through that and you felt it. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I, from that, I learned, like, I'm, am anal about, like, where, I know where my shit is. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of people that will just leave their gear in their car or just, you know what I mean? And Oh, I, yeah. We I know got, a few people like that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, I have to bring it in the house every night. Oh, know? yeah. As soon as I get home, I always unload yeah, my shit. Yeah, I always got to put it in the same, like, it's, you know, this stuff's in the garage, this is in the house, you know what I mean? I have it down pat. There you go. Because your dad said you're done. You're done, dude. <laughs>
Broadcasting straight from Big Rock Candy Mountain, I'm Zachary Lehman. I am Taylor Berryman. How can people find you, Taylor? You can find me on Instagram, the underscore Poptimist, or wherever fine podcasts or are streamed, like Spotify, Apple, all that shit. You can find me on Twitter at Writing Lehman and Zachary Lehman on Facebook and Instagram. And this week we have a guest. Yes, this uh, is our first, well, our second guest, but our first First in, in person. person. Yeah, really. Yeah, the the slick Willie himself, <laughs> Josh Josh Norfleet. How are you guys? How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks Josh, where can me. people find you at? Uh, you could find me. Everything is pretty much the same. V underscore North N O R F underscore Pole. Usually for Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Just type my name in. I guess I don't know. And how can people find your uh, your music and your band's music? Um, the reveal music. On Instagram, mostly everything's on there. We have a link tree, one of those things. It's like a tree of links. Oh, those used to be a little sketchy. The link trees, really? Yeah, yeah it's for OnlyFans. They girls, originated yeah. as just for uh, you know, so girls Titty can kind of be a little, little more uh, uh, held back about their OnlyFans. Oh, check out our band, see what you find. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <You never> know- <laughs> Hell yeah! And you got a new podcast now too, right? Yeah, man. Um, me and uh, Greg Weens, Greg Weens and I. Uh, are uh, doing a podcast together called Eat Sleep Rock Talk. We're talking about all of the um, rock music in East, not in East Nashville specifically, but just, you know, the rock music community in Nashville and just, you know, different bands, people that are involved in the community. Um, yeah. This week we were talking about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? by the Coen Brothers. Yes, the Coen Brothers. Uh, your favorite Coen Brother? movie or it's tough to say i would either say my my first choice is always going to be the big lebowski yeah but this is a very close second because this movie goes back to my childhood i feel i feel a connection to this movie because i've listened to the soundtrack so fucking much we're all about the same age so we grew up i mean this soundtrack was fucking the movie was big too but the soundtrack was bigger than the movie it was a phenomenon for sure absolutely i mean just like hearing because the movie was so big, hearing that type of music, because I grew up playing bluegrass music, yeah. hearing that type of music portrayed in a movie so big is kind of, you know what I mean? Well, like, that, and, and that's partly why the soundtrack was so huge, because a lot of people, like me included, like had never heard anything like right. this. You know what I mean? And honestly, like, I felt like did something for folk music, you know what I mean? Like, as far as the success of the movie, you know? Absolutely. It brought it back more into the mainstream. The other thing is, this is probably the Coen Brothers' biggest movie. No, it's not, bro. What is what is their biggest movie? True Grit. No Country for Old Men. I still think... Uh, I think this is their biggest movie. But how are you defining biggest? As far as, like, normal people th- that wouldn't seek out Coen Brothers' movies. That have yeah, never seen maybe. The Big Lebowski. Maybe. Because it was maybe. a huge pop culture phenomenon. It I was. wouldn't say that their other stuff was. I would I would say that, like I'll I'll put this in perspective. The movie itself, I know people who know the soundtrack and don't know the the fucking movie. Um, like the movie itself, like it came out, it got nominated for two Oscars, it got nominated for uh, adapted screenplay, it got nominated for cinematography, multiple Grammys. But the, that's what I'm saying. the The soundtrack did way better. It got nominated for a ton of Grammys, one album of the year. Yeah, but yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, it's one of their most significant. Pop culturally speaking, one of their most significant works. My grandfather, my dad's dad, 
was big into bluegrass. So when this came okay. out, my dad was super excited about it. I think I might have seen this in the theater, too. This was definitely one of the first DVDs, because this was right around when DVDs were getting big, too. I think so, yeah. It's one of the first DVDs my family bought. We'd listen to the, the soundtrack all the fucking time on road trips. Okay, and that was a big deal, DVDs, bro, back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got a DVD, man. Yeah, we got a DVD player, and this was... In the, it was like this in Signs and a couple of other movies. Yeah, all around like 2000, 2001, yeah. 2002, yeah. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, so this takes place in uh, the Great Depression, basically 1937, Mississippi, and it's about three characters. Uh, we got Ulysses Everett McGill, played by George Clooney. One of his best performances. Absolutely. One of his best performances. Absolutely. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, we also got Pete, played by John Turturro. Yeah, he's great. Jesus. Yep, and then we got uh, Delmar, Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson, yeah. He Very. may be my favorite out of the three, honestly. He's pretty great. Yeah, he's pretty great. He's got some of the best, uh, the best lines. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so it's about these three guys, right? Break out of prison. Uh, they're headed to go get a fortune. This fortune they're going to get. Blah 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 blah. Uh, anyway, this is all based on the Homer poem, The Odyssey. Have you ever read that? No. Were you ever oh, forced to read for that? Sure. Yeah, in school. Yeah. yeah, I had to read that. And it's, I had to read the Iliad too in school, which it's basically a sequel to the Iliad. It's about Odysseus and it's his long journey home. And there's a ton of similarities throughout the entire book. I mean, first, the, the main character's name is Ulysses. But basically, uh, in, the, in, the, in the book, after the Trojan War, it's Odysseus fighting, you know, bullshit, but instead of you know, the KKK and, and John Goodman. It's like a Cyclops and, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's funny, the Coen brothers actually admitted, they said uh, it's based on the poem, but they've never actually read the entire poem. They were like, we just kind of <laughs> knew the details, so we just kind of fucked around with I it. I watched an interview with the Coen brothers and the three actors, the three leads, and uh, it seems like they had a lot of fun making this movie. How could they, they not? Ha they have such great chemistry. I, he said it would, uh, like uh, one of the Coen brothers, they said it was miserably hot filming in Mississippi, but they had a good time. Like, you even in the interview, it. they were all laughing and like enjoying each other's company and all that shit. Yeah. It, it wasn't a situation like, what was a shitty movie that, like The Shining or something? Where it was yeah, just where constantly. no one had fun yeah. making it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, we should say too, the, so the cinematography, uh, someone we've talked about before, Roger Deakins, who did Shawshank Redemption. Oh, he, he shit. This, yeah. So that's why you get that realistic, that perfect kind of Americana look. You know what? It's funny that you say that, because I would say this is the same kind of vein as yeah. Shawshank. Because it's a, it's a weird realism that he's going for. It's not quite realism, but it's not quite surrealism either. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so uh, we're going to be talking about the movie and the soundtrack. Yes. And we have our... Where are you from, Josh? Why don't you explain that first? Originally, I'm from... Where are you from, boy? Kokomo. Kokomo. Kokomo, the Indiana. Fuck is Kokomo, boy. Yeah, <laughs> it's a about forty-five minutes north of Indy in Indian in Indiana. Okay, and you've got all this background. You heard you grew up listening to this music. Yeah, play yeah. a little bit of this music. Played, a, uh, yeah. I originally started playing music, just strictly playing bluegrass. I didn't really play any type of other like rock. I didn't get into rock music until like I was in like middle school, like late middle school, high school. I got into uh, the eighth grade field trip, I would say. 
<laughs> okay. to, to Washington, D.C. Okay. That's, That's when, when I, you became a rocker? Yeah. Oh, dude. shit. Yeah, you went back to the, back to the fucking the woods. <laughs> right. Like, oh, shit. I've seen the other side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> went in the swamp and <laughs> like, fuck the man, dude. The one thing about bluegrass <laughs> is that it seems like a very, uh, almost like an oral history-based music that is passed down and the way people learn it is from other people from a different generation who has played it. And that was a similar situation for you, right? No, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely, there's a hard sense of traditionalism. It is, I would describe bluegrass, um, to blues music, except sped up into a major scale. Meaning like, it's always the same, like, you know, when you listen to old blues songs, it's always like the same one, four, five, chord progression like you know even if you're not a musician you've heard it before um same with bluegrass a lot of it is traditionally the same way a lot like country music even a lot of the same just you know chord structures and just different melodies and different lyrics um for each different song what is the like the history of bluegrass music because it's a american music but what is it influenced by um i think a lot of it came from like Irish settlers, honestly, a lot of that. And also like, um, the banjo honestly came from, uh, like from slave owners, like, cause uh, the banjo is traditionally like an African instrument. And so when they came to America, that's when like bluegrass was cut. The banjo was kind of introduced in bluegrass in that way. Well, and we should say too, for, for people who, who really don't know, a lot of these songs, because they come from immigrants and they come from, you know, poor people, there are a lot of, like, hymns. There are a lot of, like, there yeah. are lessons in them. They're, so, like, a lot of songs on here, even when they do get kind of dark or they're talking about something that's kind of dark, there's still some kind of, like, moral lesson. So it feels like something that a group of people would sing together or would sing to each other to sort of pass on whatever these cultural traditions are. Right, no. Um, but, yeah, so do you want to... Yeah, let's jump into it. Um, T-Bone Burnett was the producer for this soundtrack, and what he did was he culled through a bunch of different songs of blues, bluegrass, country, folk, just Americana music, and he basically picked the best ones to tell the story and pitched it to the Coen brothers and then had artists like Alison Krauss or, uh, you know, the Soggy Bottom Boys mm-hmm. cut the tracks. <laughs> So he was kind of the one who was at the helm of all this. And he, he had a previous relationship with the Coen brothers. He had yes. worked with them in the past. He's worked with them a lot. And we should say the Coen brothers, they celebrate uh, this kind of music, like folk music and stuff, a lot in their, in their work. Because they also have, um, oh, they, they made an entire movie about folk music. I can't think of the name right now. Uh, but uh, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's with, uh, with Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. Yeah. It's uh, something Llewellyn something. Inside... Yeah, Llewellyn Davis. Yes. That's it, yeah. And so, I think John Gibbons in that, too. Uh, yeah, he might be, because uh, he's in a lot of Coen Brothers. Yeah. But, so they, they celebrate this kind of music a lot. But that's because we've mentioned them before as, like... I, I put them with, like, David Lynch with filmmakers because they make this sort of odd stuff, but yet they make it about, you know, middle America, and they make it about a, a piece of the country and a culture that's sort of ignored by a lot of other quote-unquote, like, weird filmmakers, sort of offbeat filmmakers. Like, you'll never see, like, uh, a Wes Anderson movie that, like, touches on, like, blue-collar America. You know what I mean? Which is fine, but that's what I think part of the appeal with the Coen brothers is, and that's why they can do, like, these folk music. 
film. The other interesting thing about the Coen brothers is they really make two kinds of movies. They make movies like this in The Big Lebowski, and then they make movies like No Country for Old Men in a serious just man. Just black, just yeah. total black. Yeah, 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 they're like black comedies. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we'll go through this uh, by the soundtrack, because the soundtrack actually progresses like the movie does. And our first song is, uh, speaking of songs that are sung in groups, Poe Lazarus, yeah. I believe it is, which... Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so we start to hear the chain gang before we even see anything in the movie, Breaking Rocks. Oh, yeah. And Good then, old chain gang on the side of the road. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I had a question, actually. Is that tobacco fields that they're running through or cotton fields? I, I think it was cotton fields. I think cotton. That was my yeah. guess when I saw them running through it. So this song, Poe Lazarus, it was actually recorded in 1959. By James Carter, he was a prisoner at Parchman Farms. It was a, a prison in Mississippi. And someone had went there to record them. And it tells the story of Lazarus getting caught by the... It's like a whole story yeah, okay, of yeah, like yeah. A, a prisoner. But basically, I mean, this song is... I mean, it's the song you expect like a chain gang to be singing yes. on the side of a road, you know? So well, did, this, did this guy write this song while he was like working as a chain gang and then they were just record it and swooped it from him? or With, with most of these songs, what I think it is... Because it like some of them don't have clear histories. Right. Because it's like published in... 1897 or some shit yeah it's so old and by the time it gets published how many hands did it cross as far as the writing goes because what a lot of these people like when i was looking up the soundtrack a lot of them would say oh yeah this was a song that i learned from this person or that my family used to sing and they learned it from this so it's something that goes back to where you can't even really trace it yeah um but the i think the writing credit is uh traditional on this one because sometimes like with super old songs i don't even know do you know anything about that i don't when it says traditional it's like it's in the uh like something the on public the public domain yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. it's like up it's there that, with it's ABCs that old and happy birthday yeah well the same thing uh like with with books for instance after a certain amount of years it just goes into the public domain so i can publish it under whatever fucking name i want so like a go-to for a lot of people might be traditional yeah for oh, yeah. the music industry um, but yeah, so this song, we got this chain gang song, then we cut back and we see three men running through this field as these police, you know, these, uh, uh prison guards are watching these, uh, prisoners and, uh, big rock candy mountain plays, which, Hey, Hey, here we are. Hey. It's yeah, it's, it, you know what? I was thinking about this. We, I think we talked about this before. Did we? Big rock candy mountain. Uh-huh. That's where we're trying to get to. Yes, yeah. This is the every man's fantasy. I mean, if this is not your fantasy, you're not a man. I mean, it is what it is. Because it, it describes like a hobo's fantasy. It's just rivers of, of alcohol and, and, you know, dogs have rubber teeth and the, the jails are made of wood. And you never just, have to change your socks. Yeah, it's always sunny out. Like, it's just a, it's, it's a hobo's fantasy. It's a hobo's fantasy. Don't you want to live in Big Rock Candy Mountain? Oh, dude, I literally wore these socks for two days because of this episode. <laughs> you never have to change your socks on the Big Rock Candy like, Mountain. Like, Big Rock Candy Mountain just sounds like the, the perfect place. It's like, paradise. If there is a heaven, that's, that's what it is. It's Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is, and I'll say this. So, okay, uh, something about the chain gang. Obviously, we're in 1930s Mississippi. Every prisoner is black. Every prison guard is white. So you see them sort of singing and, and sort of like, you know, going through the motions of this just misery. 
And these three other guys are running. What are they running towards, bro? Big Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah. But just like Big Rock Candy Mountain, when you describe it, I mean, it's a fantasy that obviously doesn't exist. Also, this fortune they're chasing, like spoilers, also doesn't exist. Yeah. Which we find out later. So anyway, Big Rock Candy Mountain. We love this song, right? Who's this by, by the way? Oh, Who's yeah. Who's credited it's, with it's this? It's by Harry uh, McClintock. I, I think that's how you say his name. I'm okay. not sure. That sounds right. But I don't... I. I don't know if he wrote... Uh, Josh, actually, can you look that up to see if he was For the one sure. who wrote the song? I, I'm not sure if he wrote the song or not. Uh, like you said, a lot of these, it's hard to yeah, find. Yeah, because... Because um, I read, I read uh, contra- uh, like uh, histories that didn't match up on some of these. That's, that's yeah, what I did, so. too. Um, Burl Ives did a version of this. Like mm-hmm. This is one of many there's songs on the soundtrack yeah. where there's probably 50, at least 50 versions of each song. Oh, I'm sure. Because with bluegrass bands, they play a lot of standards, too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's like, um, do you know, uh, the song in the pines like that, uh, uh, Nirvana is known for That's like kind of been known as like a traditional bluegrass. That song lead belly did. Yeah. 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 Uh, and we, that, that's kind of the same thing. Like that lead belly era music. It's so old that it's at this point, damn near traditional. You know what I mean? It's just right. been passed down. Right. Uh, and we should say, so right when big rock candy mountain stops playing, that's when they uh, they find the train. One of my favorite lines is said when they get on the train. I like George Clooney. I just like the way he delivers everything. And I do want to say, uh, I love the cadence to the way people speak in this movie because oh, it's yeah. so true to like how people do speak, where Absolutely. they're actually from. And you don't actually see that in a lot of movies made by Hollywood, even when they take take place in the South. And I love when he's on the train, he just goes, any of you boys, uh, Smithies? And then he just gets pulled off by the chain because they're all chained together. Not all of them make it. I think Del Mar's the one who doesn't make it, and he pulls them all <laughs> yes. off. They all just fall. And then uh, after that, we get, uh, we get the man with no name, as he says. Mm-hmm. I have no name. He's on, I didn't look up what this was, some kind of pulley system. He's yeah, just on this little platform moving down the railroad he was by himself. Blind. Um, and this relates to uh, the Odyssey as well, because he bas- he meets an oracle who tells him, your journey's going to take uh, 12 years. And this is uh, similar because this guy tells him he's blind. They keep asking him, like, you know, what's your name? He's like, I have no name. And he tells him, you're going to go on a great journey. You're going to find the f- a fortune, but not the fortune you seek. And you're also going to see a cow on a, a, on cot- a roof. On a cotton, uh, yeah, a cotton roof or something like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, so anyway, this all happens. Next song, we're on to a fucking real classic, You Are My Sunshine. You right? Are My Sunshine, yeah. It's been recorded by more than 350 artists. No kidding. That's yeah. it? I expected more, honestly. Yeah. So um, I couldn't find the date of when it was originally published because I think this song's like probably old as fuck, and it was kind of up for dispute of like who actually wrote it because the guys who did it, it was Jimmy Davis and Charles Mitchell. They have the writer's credit. It was done by Norman Blake on the soundtrack. But uh, even that, I think, was disputed, too, because they got it from somewhere else. They were just the first ones to publish it. Oh, wow. Mm. Which what, is so greasy. What year was that? Um, I think they got it in, like, the 50s, maybe, or something like that. So it's way fucking, or even older than that. But um, yeah, it was it was published, and it, uh, a lot of songs too, like history of of songs and shit like that. Shit gets published, and it might have gotten published before it even ever got recorded because there was no recordings yet. Because they used to have songbooks that you would just learn music out of, 
So that's why their song publishers exist was for these songbooks, and they would go to places like saloons and shit like that, and you would see a guy playing piano. He would just be reading the music. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that song honestly came from a grandma, dude. Oh, yeah. You know it had I mean? to just be like some... A grandma yeah, ballad. Yeah. And look how big it got. So this plays uh, while it's on the radio, while they go to see Pete's cousin, I believe. Yes. Mr. Uh, Hosh Hogwallop, I think. Hogwallop. And we should say about these characters real quick. So George Clooney's basically, uh, he's, he's the thinker. He's, he's the leader of this crew. The clean cut guy. Yeah, he's the, you know, he's putting the, the pomade. He's a Dapper Dan his, man. Yeah, he's right. a Dapper Dan man, you know. He's a very classy guy. Then we got Pete. Pete's, uh, you know, he's a big, dumb, tall tree, basically. Basically. And then I, I feel like with the most uh, temper. Yes. Yeah, because he keeps going, uh, who made you leader of this outfit? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we got Delmar, and Delmar is, you know, simple, but uh, but real nice. Real nice. I like when Delmar's asked, uh, Delmar, you ever had sex with a woman? And Delmar goes, well... I got to figure out family farm before I start thinking about stuff like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> such an innocent answer. You're like, I don't even want to make fun of him. <laughs> so anyway, this plays when they're at the, uh, the cousin's house. Nobody's really talking. They're just eating horse, doing their thing. Uh, but then when they're all asleep, that's when the popo come. The law come. The law come. John Q. Law. John Q. Law. And I like how uh, I like how George Clooney, as this situation progressively gets worse, every time something happens, he just goes, we're in a tight spot, boys. <laughs> <laughs> he has no plan. He just keeps repeating this. So the cops are there. The cousin, uh, you know, it's the Great Depression. You know, he's got bills to pay. Sold out, sold out his kin, which Pete's not too happy about. Uh, the police say, you know, they're not going to give up. So the police say, you give us no choice. We're going to have to smoke you out. So they set it on fire, uh, but they're rescued by Pete's nephew, I guess. Yeah. 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 Pete's nephew. That's the, one of the best parts of the movie. Oh, and the kids Get like, in, boys. I'm an R-U-N-N-O-F-T. <laughs> yes. Which gets repeated. I love that yeah. line. <laughs> so, yeah, he helps him escape this, uh, what would be, you know, a fiery death. Uh, and then what do we got for the next song? Oh, then we're, remember, so they send the kid back home. Yep. Car's broken down. What, was that a... Uh, the police's car, or was that their no, car? No, I think it was their car. Yeah, it I think Pete's. I would feel like it would be, a, yeah, Pete's. Well, uh, his yeah, Hogwash's, yeah. Uh, Hogwallop's car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they send the kid home. Car's broken down. They try to get the part. Uh, this is another one of my favorite lines. They find out the part is uh, two weeks away, and then, um, they also don't have his Dapper Dan uh, hair gel. Yeah, they have this different hair gel. And he says, "I'm a Dapper Dan man." I, but he says, I can get you Dapper Dan, but it takes two weeks. I love when he goes, uh, George Clooney, he's like, uh, wink this place just a geographical oddity. Two weeks away from everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's so many lines like that that should make you fucking oh, love Oh, yeah. It's, it's classic Coen Brothers. The other thing I love about this movie and Coen Brothers' dialogue in general there's a real Shakespearean rhythm to it. Oh, yeah. Well, Very true. Yeah, and, and this too, I mean, because they are, even though they joke they hadn't read the Odyssey, there's enough similarities here where they are kind of looking at this as like, this is their own version of an epic poem, like a hero's journey. Because we find out, we should say, there is no fortune. George Clooney, or uh, Everett, he lied to his two uh, companions. He really just needed to get out because his wife is about to get remarried, which in the Odyssey... Odysseus has to make it back to his wife because his wife has another suitor. Because ain't that how it fucking goes? 
Every time you ain't around, huh? The <laughs> sharks are just swarming. Odysseus, I'm telling you, uh, that book is, it, it would be hard to read today because how it's written, but it is like a baller story. It's a white boy summer story. Because Odysseus is like a character who's like, he's like, I don't give a fuck about the Trojan War. And then when it's done, he's like, I'm trying to get home and get laid. And he's just got to fight like Cyclopses and Sirens and all this bullshit. Anyway, so the next song, Down to the River to Pray. Yes. Because eventually they find themselves, they hear some singing, they go into the woods, right? Yeah. And then they see uh, these religious people, nut jobs as some would call them, religious people as other people would call them. And they're, they're baptizing Christ people, Christ cuts, right? as other people would Yes, as some people. And, uh, yeah, they're singing Down to the River, which is just a religious song. It's, yeah. a, you know. Another traditional song, um, originally published in 1867. Wow. Holy fuck. So, uh, a lot of these songs, they change through time. If you, like, go back and look at the lyrics of the original one published, it's different than what's on the soundtrack. There's, like, tweaks to it. So uh, I think that's just part of the tradition of like American folk and country bluegrass and blues Yeah, is that everybody puts their spin on it because it's kind of the same way with blues songs too. Absolutely. Because they, they'll all play the same songs, but they do their own version of it and right. they even change the words. It's, right. al- it's also too a lot of uh, just gospel music too, just like the... Southern Baptists, just where they just get up and all they you get out the red book and turn to page 14 and it's that song. You know what I mean? And it's just songs that has been gone out down for generations. Right. So uh, they're baptizing people and uh, Delmar decides he's going to get saved. (laughs) He's going to wash, wash his sins away. Uh, I, I will ask you boys real quick. Have either of you ever been in a situation where you've been in a church and they ask people to go get saved? Cause this does happen in church. Oh yeah. Have no. you been in this? No. Yes. Oh yeah. Did, no you, did you ever saved. go up to get saved? Oh yeah, dude, bro. I'll tell you how fucking me and Tristan both together. Me and my cousin Tristan both together. <laughs> I'm going to bring this up. To Tristan. <laughs> uh, I will say, bro, uh, this is in case I go to hell. I was so loyal to Satan, bro. <laughs> I have been in church a many a time when they called everyone up. And I remember, too, uh, when I was in uh, basic training, I went to church every week to get out of, because you could get out of, like, duties, because you'd be like, I got to go worship God. And I remember every week they would call people up, like, who wants to give their life to Christ? And you were supposed to put your head down, so it, it kept it anonymous. But I put my head up. And I remember the last fucking week, bro, it, I'm talking, this is a stadium. There are 200 seats. It's a, a literal stadium because they do music and stuff. I was one of maybe five people who didn't go up to get saved that last day. So people were looking at me just like, damn, devil worshiper. Did you ever go and back? I was just like, Satan, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever go back? Well, that was the last week, but yeah, I mean, people would know yeah. that, like, you know, I ain't about this. But anyway, so uh, Delmar goes, he gets saved. Pete gets saved. And Pete gets saved, too, because, uh, yeah, Pete goes, you know, what does he say? Uh, I'll, I'll be a son of a bitch. Delmar just got saved. So he goes <laughs> to get saved. Everett's a little more like me, you know, a little more. Of, I'm a Dapper Dan man. Yeah. That's what I said. They said, listen, yeah. accept Jesus as your, your, your Lord and Savior. I said, fuck off. Dapper Dan. I'm a Dapper Dan man. Uh, so they both get saved. After this, uh, I, I love another line by by Everett. He goes, uh, "You boys are just dumber than a bag of hammers." Right? <laughs> and uh, after this, uh, they pick up Tommy, right? Yeah, Tommy yep. Johnson. Tommy Johnson, Tommy. who is based off of Robert Johnson. Yeah, 
Oh, really? Yeah. So Robert Johnson is this uh, this blues singer. When did Robert Johnson really exist? That was probably in the 30s. In the 30s, yeah. So, oh, so that, is this the Crossroads legend? Yeah. Yes. Okay. The Crossroads okay. legend. Okay, yep. So this is yep. who this character is based off yep. of. It's, and they literally meet Tommy at a crossroads. Yes. He and just he, got done selling his soul to the <laughs> yeah. devil. Yeah, because he informs them. Uh, he's played by uh, Chris Thomas King, I believe. Yeah, and he, he's a musician. Oh, really? He's, yeah, he's like a blues singer. He has a career he's re- he's in really all that good. shit. He is great. Yeah, he says, uh, you know, he's got a guitar with him. He says he sold his soul to the devil. And as he says, I, I wasn't doing anything with it, which I'm like, yeah, I agree with. Fuck mm-hmm. it. Why not? Do you sell your soul, Josh? Uh, Fuck you doing with I'm not, it. I'm not up to speak of it. <laughs> so they one pick of, up. One of the Kardashians might kill me. Oh. Oh, I see. I'm trying to sell my soul, but no one's buying no, no, mine's been, I've lowered the price a lot, and it's basically, it's, it's like that $5 there. bin at Walmart at this point, the DVDs, it's like nobody wants yeah, it. Yeah, our soul's you know just on I mean. the bottom of the barrel waiting. Yeah, I'm like, a, I'm like a Steve Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin straight to DVD action movie at this point. <laughs> so they go with, uh, Tommy tells him about a guy who's playing people $10 to play into a can. Radio broadcast station. Yeah, they go to a radio station. But you boys work at a radio station. For sure. Yeah, we do. Mass communicating. <laughs> so they go here because uh, one thing I'll say, because spoilers, they end up singing and they're great. I love that all of these guys are uh, randomly musically talented, but it never, ever explains why. They never go like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Played, I played music before. It's just like, no. never. It was like they, they've done this song a million times and they go to cut it. Which maybe they have. Maybe they have. So anyway, uh, they the next song is they go to this station and they're going to play... Well, they play Man of Constant Sorrow, but we should say before they go in, I think it's funny because the man says, what type of music does he not play? I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I don't what type this. of music does he say, Taylor? I don't remember this. Uh, he does not play uh, basically black people music. Yeah. Yeah, he, he ain't about it. You know oh, yeah, I, mean? I remember now. Uh, <laughs> and so, and Tommy is black, and he's the only black one, but I like that. And this guy's blind, too. Yeah, this guy's blind. Played by Steven Root, who's great. He's in a ton of Coen Brothers movies. I like whenever it introduces them. He actually says Tommy's the only white one. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he's, Which, not, he's not interested when they first tell him. Right? And I'll actually say that actually shows Everett's kind of a good guy. Yeah. Because he's not, because Tommy wanted to show up anyway. So he's like, well, if we get kicked out, Tommy can still play and make his yes. 10 bucks or whatever. Yeah. Well, they also, yeah, because they say uh, one of our accountants can't read, read or write. So we'll have to have someone else sign. Yeah. Then they him. go, they basically make up two random people. To yeah. Get an extra to get extra money. <laughs> I love to, uh, the way Steven Root plays it's funny because when they tell him that, he just goes, mm, That'd be fine. I <laughs> yeah. just talk so fucking weird. So, Man of Constant Star, I mean, let's just go over this because this is the biggest song off the fucking the movie. Yes. So, originally it was published in 1913. It's an old ass fucking song and it was popularized by the Stanley brothers in the 50s. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Ralph Stanley and uh, Carter Stanley. Yeah. Yes, and Ralph Stanley is on this soundtrack. We'll talk about him later. For sure. He won a Grammy for his, his performance in this movie, or on this soundtrack. But, um, yeah, so uh, T-Bone Burnett, he su- originally suggested this song be played and th- that it's like the dude's theme song in The Big Lebowski. And the Coen brothers oh, are like, really? it doesn't fit. Yeah, I get them saying that. It has a little too much energy for the dude. Yeah. But it is a rambling man song. It is. Because this song is just about... Just about being a man of constant sorrow. Exactly, Just dude. Uphill shit battles, you know? And honestly, coming from and talking with a lot of hillbilly people, 
there, I remember there were some people at some time that George Clooney played the part so well while they're like cutting the song that there were, I know people that were like, I didn't know George Clooney could yes. sing like that. And we should say George Clooney's not the one singing. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. They, they gave him a chance to do it. And you know, this, this should show you life is a little fair because George Clooney may be handsome. He may be rich. He may have a beautiful wife. He may have a beautiful life, but he can't sing worth a damn. I didn't know they gave him a shot to try. Yeah, originally. I, I think even he said, though, it was just to sort of feed his ego a little bit. It was like, all right, go ahead, give it a shot. If it rocks us, it'll be great. But he said it, it wasn't great. And it's uh, Dan, how do you pronounce his last name? Tominsky. Yes. So he's the one who sings on uh, on the song. And uh, Dan Tominsky is a part of Allison Krauss's band. Yes. And uh, she's on Union the Station. Soundtrack. Yeah. Yep. And she's on the, yeah. Um, all of these artists honestly, honestly came from the same record label, like uh, Rounder Records. Some it, Nashville shit. Yeah, dude. it is a Nashville label, and they uh, a lot of it's like a roots based label. They like Billy Strings is on there, and um, they have a couple of other artists that they're really pumping out now. But uh, they did most. Uh, they I'm pretty sure they are the one that put out the actual soundtrack. Um. But yeah, Dan Tominsky, he has put out some <coughs> several solo albums as well, kind of following the same music. A lot of just catchy, traditional bluegrass songs. Um, I got to meet him at Bean Blossom one year. He's just like a, someone, like just a dad that's just like had it at work. Because after the show, when I talked to him, he was just smoking a fat cigar. <laughs> Didn't give a damn. Nicest guy. Yeah. I watched a couple interviews with him, and he talked about recording this song, and T-Bone Burnett was even saying during the soundtrack, or during the recording of the, the soundtrack, he said, this song is going to be huge beyond the movie. He said, even if the movie's a failure, this is going to yeah. be a crossover hit. Well, and it's tough, too, when you do these movies, and they're dependent upon you having a hit song, but it has to be a fake hit song. That's a big fucking swing for movies to take, because... You're like, all right, the movie has to work, but also we're also we also have to make a hit fucking song, and then the rest of the movie's contingent upon whether people like the song. This happened to be a song that was fucking great, so you understand why people are crazy about the song right when they play it in the movie. So they play they play it in the movie. Any, anything else? You boys love this song, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was gonna say that like the movie has made it, the song is so good and so big that. At bluegrass like shows, anytime I tell people that like I play, it's kind of like Freebird, dude. Like, oh, I can I can see that. It's like Rocky yeah. Top, Man of Constant Sorrow. Yeah, that's what they want to hear. And do do a lot of uh, musicians, uh, bluegrass musicians, spit on uh, Man of Constant Sorrow because they're just so sick of it. Uh, a lot of times, yeah. There's I know Tristan does. Yeah, it's honestly it's been done so many times. Like I said, it's kind of like Freebird at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least it's not 12 minutes long, like right, Freebird. No. Uh, so, yeah, so they play this song. Um, they get their, you know, $10 a piece. They meet Pappy O'Daniel after, uh, who's the mayor. Mayor, I believe, right? Uh, governor. Governor, Governor, yeah. okay. Uh, so he's supposed to represent Zeus here, by the way. Zeus in the Odyssey ends up helping Odysseus on his journey. Later, Pappy will actually help these boys on their journey. Uh, and then the next song... Next, they're all around a fire, and this is where we get to see uh, uh, Chris, uh, what's his face? Uh, Tommy sing. Johnson. Tommy Johnson sing, and uh, he sings Hard Time. 
Killing Floor Blues. Yes. So this was written by Skip James in 1931. So uh, again, with the, the a lot of these songs, Killing Floor is like a common term in blues music. It's in a million different blues songs. It's in a million different like uh, rock blues songs as well. I was going to say, it's survived over the years because you can still find that saying in music and stuff. Yeah, because you know I mean? uh, and it's big in country music too. Um but yeah, Killing Floor, like Led Zeppelin has a song where they reference Killing Floor. Um, I think Cream does as well. Like you just look through all of those kind of British blues bands in the 60s and 70s, they, they all have a song. Either Killing Floor, Killing Floor Blues, some variation of that. And it's, it's a typical like blues song, like just a working man's. It's you know, Down it's on your luck. Lyrics like, uh, it's what, can't find no heaven, I don't care where they go. Hey, and the way they door. did the song too, like really matched the the setting of the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were just around the fire. It, yeah, that's the other great thing about this uh, this movie and the pairing with the soundtrack. Because sometimes in musicals, because this is like a musical, I would say absolutely. Yeah. Um, but a lot of musicals are usually bullshit, and things are just kind of uh, shoehorned into it. You know, just so they can have a moment. But this whole movie, it doesn't ever feel like anything's out of place. It moves no. the story along. Yeah. And we should say, while this song is playing, they're also talking about what they're going to do with their share of the fortune. And uh, Delmar's going to buy his family land back. Uh, Pete, I think, is going to do something similar. And then Everett does say he's going to win his wife back here. He kind of reveals right. he has a wife and kids and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, so Hard Time Killing Floor Blues is a great song. Great fucking song. Next song on the soundtrack is actually another. They have like three other instrumental versions of Man of Constant Sorrow. Yeah, so this is the first one, and uh, it, it's done by Norman Blake, but around the fireside, it's Tim Blake Nelson playing, or was it Pete? Uh, it might have been Pete. I yeah, think it might have been one of them was playing guitar. They were yeah, basically uh, doing the vocal melody on the guitar. And we should say this plays... Uh, they meet another stranger because this plays uh, with George Babyface Nelson, right? When they're around the fire, I believe. So before this, they meet uh, George Babyface Nelson. Uh, he's just robbed a bank. He's looking for directions, finds the boys, asks them for directions. They don't really know where they are. So he says, hop on in, boys. And they're uh, running from the police. He's breaking a world record, I think he says. He wants to rob 11 banks in right. one day or something. So they go into this bank, unknowingly helping him rob it. And uh, George Nelson, who's a high-energy guy, he's got himself a Tommy gun. He hears uh, someone whisper uh, his nickname, Babyface, because George Babyface Nelson was a real bank robber, and he doesn't like Babyface, and uh, he freaks out. He kind of gets deflated. He says, you know, a bunch of times before he leaves, he just goes, George, George Nelson. <laughs> and then he even, right before he leaves, he goes, and I'm here to raise hell. Yeah. And he just shoots off like two rounds into the roof, just de-energized. Uh, and then, yeah, they're around a fire, and he's basically giving them the money. He's walking off into nowhere. He's depressed. But as Everett says, you know, uh, what goes up must come down. This is not the last we've seen of uh, George Nelson. And it's not the last we see of George Nelson. No, no. Uh, so next we're on to Keep on the Sunny Side, another fucking just old as dirt song 1899 for this one yeah wow which they play this a bunch in the in the movie but uh at this this is when uh they're playing it uh is it homer stokes is the uh it's his rally for for governor he's running against yeah. pappy homer stokes is running against pappy o'daniel 
He's uh, for the little man. Yeah, I'm for the little man, and he's got himself a little man. Yes. He's campaigning with a little man, him and a little man. I like to, don't they have brooms, and his, his little yeah. guy's got a little broom. Yeah. He's like, we're going to sweep away the last administration. He's, far, he's like, he ain't lying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's an old-ass song. So basically, he's running against, uh, and the way that's introduced his campaign manager, I believe, is the guy who's going to marry uh, Everett's wife. Yeah, well, um, I think the the next song after is "I'll Fly Away" I'll by fly his daughters. Away. Yes, his daughters are singing it on stage. He sees them up on stage, event. so yes. he goes up there to talk to them, and they're like, "Our daddy got hit by a train." Yeah, so his mom's basically saying that he's dead, <laughs> or their mom's saying he's dead. Uh, but again, this is what's so great about this movie is Everett's like, he's the everyman, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just like Odysseus when he's going through this journey. It's just like, how much more bullshit can you face? Oh, absolutely. You know what yeah. I mean? They keep like the craziest events are just happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every curveball, but that's life. Right. No. You're going to hit every fucking curveball. So anyway, so yeah, his kids are there. Uh, he has a long discussion with his wife. His wife ain't fucking interested. Uh, the next song, though, we should skip ahead to Didn't Leave Nobody But the Baby. This is a, a great scene in the movie. So I'll Amazing. say this before you get into the song. Uh, it's Well, it's three sexy women, obviously, singing at a lake. And this is a very seductive song. Uh, this So this also relates to the Odyssey because three sirens, which are basically like mermaids that would tempt pirates into the ocean and stuff by singing, uh, they end up tempting... Odysseus's crew and a lot of his crew end up falling for it, but he's the one who's like, fuck, no, I'm getting home. Well, Pete hears it and he wants to stop. He's like, well, what is you, that sound? And do you remember the way Pete yeah. reacts? That is a man who hasn't had pussy in a long time because <laughs> he hears a woman's voice. He's got his fist in his mouth. He's like, oh, I, I can't even Hold do the scream. Over. He does. Like, yeah. Ah! So he runs. These women come up to them. They're, they're giving him them some kind of alcohol or whatever. Any, anything about this song? I mean, it, it's just a great, a great scene. It's another one of those songs where it's like, it, it, there's some darkness to this one. Oh, absolutely. If you really, well, if you listen to the song with headphones, like towards yes. the end, you really hear like it's this, a fucked up song. Yeah, it's it's definitely dark. Um, I believe Emily Lou Harris is yeah. singing on. Well, yeah, Emily Lou Harris, Allison Krauss, and Gillian Welch or Gillian Welch. I don't know how you say it, but that's who did it for the soundtrack. And uh, we should say when they wake up. So I have a question about when they wake up, because Pete's gone. They done turned Pete into a horny toad. Uh, there's only this toad left, which Delmar thinks they trapped his soul in. Now, Everett and, uh, and Delmar are still there, and Pete's clothes are just there. He's not there. Does this mean that maybe Everett and Delmar, maybe they didn't sleep with the women, and Pete did sleep with the woman, and he's being punished? Because he that, fell for temptation. That could be true. it. Everett could have said no, because he's a married man. And Delmar has to figure out the family farm before right. he starts thinking about that stuff. Absolutely. Uh, the, alternatively, too, uh, it shows them drink, uh, him drinking out of their bottle. Yes. And it, it was like an XXX bottle, so probably like moonshine or mm-hmm. some shit, you know? But I love, too, that this is never explained. Like, the scene, the right. scene just happens, and there's no... Like, the Coens aren't interested, but I love that, because yeah. it just gives, like, a, a dreamish quality to everything. Uh, so after this, uh, In the Highways is the next song. This is actually the... Uh, this, 
This is the song that the... Uh, the daughter sang. Yeah. So the other one, I think they were on the back of a truck, like, singing that on the way to... Oh, yeah, to the radio station. Yeah. Yeah, we, it got mixed up. But yeah, yeah, his daughter sing in the highways, right? Yeah. In the highways, and the heavens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Another... honestly might be my favorite one. Really? Maybe, really? Honestly, because, like, you, I, you hear Man of Constant Sorrow so much, but I remember true, being a true. little kid and loving that song. Yeah, I yeah. love that song. Um. Yeah, so that's playing. That's the next song. And then, uh, oh, and we see the speech and everything. Uh, the next song, I Am Weary. I didn't know where that played in the movie. Did it play while they were in the movie theater? Where they see that Pete's back in jail? No, I think it played back when they were um, they were outside and shit was still going on. Oh, okay. So it just played at some point. Yeah, it just played that. in the background. Another old as fuck song. Another old as fuck song. Uh, then we have another, because we should say Pete gets arrested again. They see Pete. Yeah, they're in the back of a truck. And the police question Pete. However, they... He's getting whipped. Yeah. He's getting tortured and, you know, where they going, blah, blah, blah. So the next song, it's another Man of Constant uh, Sorrow um, cover. Uh, this is where they they get Pete out and Pete confesses, I told them where the cabin is, blah, blah, blah. And also, Everett confesses, there is no fortune. And then uh, the next song, because they see a little burning and they hear a little little singing which is never good in the South if it's the no. middle of the night and you're in the woods. And we should say they also have all darkened their faces a bit. To, so, bust, to bust Pete out of jail. But it's because they're trying to blend in with the night because yeah. they don't want to be seen. So the next song is Oh Death being sung at a KKK rally. I will say this is probably my favorite song, but not because it's not at a shocking. KKK rally. No, I just like the song. There's a lot of good covers, too. Like, I think it's uh, Kate Mann does a really good cover. It's just a really creepy song. It's literally just about death. It's a man trying to negotiate with death. But death's like, nah, fuck you. Yeah. Um, the way that it's done, too, especially with creepy singing this voice. acapella. Yeah, you know yeah I mean? it's yeah. like a Appalachian style. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's something wild to it. That's some Kentucky music, boy. Yeah. yeah the, it, like... I feel like this is another form. It, this song has origins back to 1908. This is definitely, I mean, look, this is a song that a bunch of dudes in white hoods sing before they're about to kill somebody. You know right, what I mean? This right. puts you in the mood because we should say they see Tommy. All these KKK bastards have Tommy. Yep. And they're doing all this ceremonial bullshit, whatever, you know, KKK guys do when they're not singing songs and chanting. Yep, yep, yep. And we run back into John Goodman. Yes, uh, and we should say, I think we actually skipped over John Goodman. We skipped scene. over that part. All right, so let's go over John Goodman real quick because he's the fucking best. He's one of the best parts of this movie. Uh, John Goodman, so from the Odyssey, he has one eye in this movie. He represents the Cyclops that, uh, that uh, Odysseus ends up fighting and he blinds the, the Cyclops, outsmarts him. But uh, Big Dan, Big Dan, Big, Big, Big Man Teague, is that what his name is? Big Dan Teague, something like that. So he introduces himself, big old John Goodman, back before he lost weight. He introduces himself to the boys, uh, Pete, who they think is a horny toad. This is before they get him out of prison. Delmar and Everett at lunch. He's a con man. He takes them out for a, Bibles. a picnic. Yeah, he's going to tell them how to make money. And be saved by God. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he just takes, you know, he's talking to, to Everett. Everett's just chewing on corn on the cob, listening, you know, intently. And... Uh, Big Dan takes uh, this big stick off a tree, this big branch. He just knocks Delmar out. And uh, Everett's unfazed. He just goes, what's the deal, Big Dan? And then he gets, you know, it turns into a big brawl. Corn's flying everywhere when he gets hit. So basically, John Goodman robs them. 
he thinks something valuable is in this shoebox, but it turns out to just be a horny toad. The next time we see John Goodman, he's in a KKK hood. And he recognizes, because uh, the boys sneak in to save Tommy, because they got to save Tommy. And uh, John Goodman recognizes uh, these men aren't white, because he's seeing through their, uh, their eye holes. And he stops one of them, pulls the mask off. And then chaos ensues. Go we ahead. see that it's Homer who's leading the KKK rally. Yes, Homer, uh, Patio Daniels uh, competition. Yeah, he's yeah. leading the KKK rally. And then we see they, they run from these guys, and they take the Confederate flag at one point, and they throw it up. And it must be a rule that it can't touch the ground. Because everyone's like, don't let it touch Homer the ground. Homer starts freaking out. Yeah, and John Goodman catches it, but then they cut down this giant burning cross and presumably kill him and a few other people. Yeah. Uh, so the next song, now we're at the final, basically the final scene of the, well, not the final scene, but the denouement. Uh, we're at the, uh, uh, I think it's a Homer event, but Papio Daniel's there. It's a Everyone's event. there. Yeah. This is after the KKK rally. And at one point, they sneak in and they take the stage as the Soggy Bottom Boys, who we've seen Darren throughout beards. the movie, have become, yeah, fake beards. We've seen they've become legends, the Soggy Bottom Boys right. throughout the South. They've gotten the hit play. Like, it, the song's a hit all over the radio. People are yeah. buying the record left and, and right. And nobody knows who they are. We even right. see at one point, I think, George Clooney burns a paper that says, like, who are the Soggy Bottom Boys? Right. People are trying to find them. Is there an equivalent of the Soggy Bottom Boys in folk music? Well, I mean, just the, like a go to, like they were just the soggy bottom boys is completely fictionist, really. Right, right. And I mean, there's definitely like, like, you know, big slammers, like, you know, I, Jimmy Martin was a big one, Bill Monroe, the like, you know, big, you know, primetime hitters in bluegrass. Lester that would actually, would, they'd actually have like, Oh, bitches yeah. screaming at shows. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Cause that's basically what the soggy bottom boys are here. And they sing, uh, in the jailhouse now. This is my favorite song on the soundtrack. Sung by Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. He actually does his own singing. It, yeah, and he's great. He does a really good job. Well, he's got the perfect uh, southern drawl for it. Yeah. And the whole song's just about a dude, you know, gambling and drinking, and he ends up in the jailhouse. Rambling Bob. Yep, Rambling Bob. He used to drink, steal, and rob or something like used that. Used to Bob steal, gamble, and rob. Who yeah. thought he yeah. was the smartest guy around? Yeah. <laughs> it's That's, a great song. I love that song. Webb Pierce, I think. What made that song big? Um, he uh, was like one of those '50s doo-wop country artists. You know what I mean? Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. It's love, a great fucking love that song. song. Old so catchy. Shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a great fucking song. So while he's playing that, uh, Everett's trying to talk to his woman, and she's not having it. Played by Holly Hunter, we should say. Who you know? Who wouldn't try to win back Holly Hunter? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, trying to win her back. She's not fucking having it. But he's like, I got, I got big plans. And little does she know, he's part of the Soggy Bottom Boys. Uh, he has to stop talking to her, though. Oh, and we should say Papio Daniel's there. He's trying to get the campaign manager for Homer over to his side. Yeah. They start playing Man of Constant Sorrow, so George Clooney has to go sing. He notices how crazy people are going over this fucking song. And I like the move, George. I like the move he makes with the fake beard too. At one point, remember that he just pulls oh, it yeah. down a couple yeah. times. That was a cool. That was a cool George Clooney move. Uh, so they play the song. It's fucking crazy. But Homer recognizes them from the KKK rally. Yeah. And I like his first line. He goes, "Wait a minute, these boys is not white." <laughs> <laughs> like out of everything, the thing he thought like everyone would go like, "Yeah, fuck these guys." Right. Like, these boys is not white. <laughs> and no one gave a fuck, dude. No. no. And you can see that they're white, too. Like, yeah. uh, so 
Homer freaks out. He starts, uh, he finds, uh, he starts telling people, you know, they're fugitives from the law. And Oh, and then he says, uh, and I got it on good authority that uh, the black gentleman, but he doesn't say black gentleman, sold his soul to the devil. And even Papio Daniel goes, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) so offended. (laughs) But anyway, so Homer tries to uh, rally these people against, and he basically outs himself as a KKK member. And I love the way this scene plays out because it, it's such a, it's an example of the Coen brothers. This is why they're miles ahead of other storytellers. Other storytellers, when they take on like social issues or anything, they have to do it very head on and be like, this is what I think about it. But here, it's very obvious all the symbolism here. It's times are changing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because art is changing times. Like people don't give a fuck that there's a black guy up there. People don't give a fuck that the three white guys are fugitives. They're like, we just think this is a great song. Live and let live. You know what I mean? But they do it in a very satirical, very like unpolitical, just very like silly way, where it's more effective, honestly. Well, that's how the the world used to be uh, compared to today, too. Well, it's story, almost it going used to be back more calm. Yeah, 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 to the old way of burn the witch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, uh, so Homer is he's taken out. People are done with him. He's taken out of the uh, out of the room, out of his own campaign event. Yeah. Uh, and then they keep playing, and Papio Daniel sees an opportunity. He seizes the day. Yes, he's like, these boys might make me win. So he goes on stage, starts dancing, he's doing his thing, and he pardons uh, the Soggy Bottom Boys. And it cuts to, at one point, some like uh, a husband and wife list just listening on the radio. Yeah. So this was like it's a being big broadcast. Thing. Yeah, yeah right. so they're like, oh, fuck. Like, and this is... This is supposed to be the end of the Odyssey because the Odyssey ends with he gets everything he wants. He gets his woman. He's back home, blah, 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 after all this bullshit. And George Clooney, technically, at the end of this movie, gets everything he wants and more. You know what I mean? They are getting a fortune, but not the fortune they seek, like they were told. Uh, so they get pardoned. He also says, uh, these three are also, or these four are going to be my brain trust as well. And uh, I think Delmar is like, uh, Everett, what does that mean? He's like, well... Delmar, I think that means we're going to be sort of like the power behind the throne. Right. <laughs> uh, so then after this, uh, Everett and his wife, have, have they've made up. Uh, oh, we should say, no, there is a song that plays before this. The Indian War Whoop off the uh, soundtrack. Well, even before that. There's another Man of Constant Sorrow. Well, they do uh, You Are My Sunshine. Oh, yeah, They're they play it again. They're all singing yeah. in the audience together. Pappy yeah, Pappy singing. has them do it again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then when they go outside and they're talking to uh, Everett's wife, they see George Babyface Nelson again. And he's back on top. He's with a lynch mob. They're going to kill him, and he feels good. He feels 10 feet tall, he says. And the Indian war whoop is playing. It's another traditional yeah, song. Just an old fucking, you know, because the people are singing it. It's not like a song that plays on the soundtrack or over the movie, I should say. Uh, so anyway, uh, his wife, Everett, Everett's wife, who I should say her name is uh, Penny, which uh, Odysseus's wife's name was uh, Penelope. Uh, she says, you need to get the ring that we were first engaged with, which is at this cabin where he originally said the fortune was. And then she says, I've counted to three, which you know. Woman says some shit like that. Woman says she counted to three or did any sort of action to indicate that a fight is over. If she then expresses that to you, it's bad fucking news. Right. So Everett accepts, we got to go get this fucking ring. And this is a long fucking way away. Well, this is the treasure that he was seeking all this time. His wife, his family. Yeah. Yes. So. And so he has to go back there and the whole thing with trying to get uh, back to the cabin in time to get this treasure 
was because a flood is going to be coming through because it floods every single year. Yeah, and he said they're they're purposely flooding at this time because they're going to be putting up uh, an electrical grid, basically. Uh, so they go to this cabin, and the lawman is there, the sheriff who's been chasing them, uh, who is also supposed to represent Poseidon. Because uh, we at the end, they say, we've been pardoned, we've been pardoned. Like, the police are waiting there, and they're going to fucking hang them. And they say, this isn't the law. And he's like, the law? This ain't about the law. Same thing happens in the Odyssey, basically, because the Cyclops that he blinds is the son of Poseidon, and Poseidon fought on the opposite side, or he was on the opposite side of the Trojan War, so he hated Odysseus. And that's why this final act isn't about the law, it's about hate. He's just like, I fucking hate you guys. Because they say, didn't you hear it on the radio? And he goes, we ain't got no radio. Yeah. So he's going to kill them all. They're praying. And we should say, I mean, the the Coen brothers... uh, I would guess they're probably atheists, but they make some pretty religious movies because these guys pray. Oh, their absolutely. Their fucking prayers are answered. Oh, right. They're all on their knees, and this big tidal wave comes through, which is another reason people think this character represents besides. This tidal wave comes through, wipes this fucking place out, but our boys survive. One at a time, they pop up. Yep. And they're floating on a coffin, we should say. A coffin pops up. The the coffins that they were supposed to be in after they got hanged. Yep. And then Tommy survives, too. And he's on the the actual desk that the the ring is supposed to be in, where the wife said it was. Uh, And then we should say before that, uh, another song, Lonesome Valley Plays, which is similar to Poe Lazarus, like a very old school. Yes. And this is another example with blues songs. Uh, the Stones did a version of this song. You gotta move. Do you know that off the of Sticky Fingers? I don't. Oh no. fuck, I don't know that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh, this wow. is another one of those things where it's like with blues. Oh, shit, I bet that's good. Uh, yeah. So people like ones that are super old. Um, they just incorporate into their own <coughs> songs. I don't even right. know if so- the Stones got a writer's credit for that, or if um they like modified it to where they wouldn't get sued or whatever because even led zeppelin i was gonna say they didn't zeppelin it enough yeah Yeah. they got yeah zeppelin definitely got sued but they did it multiple times but yeah yeah zeppelin stole a lot uh yeah so that song's being sung by basically these prisoners who are being forced to dig their graves and it's just you know death is uh death is a coming and it's a sad scene because they are all you know i I like uh pete he just goes uh good lord what do we do and they just get, and to be fair, again, they give themselves over to the Lord, they get saved. And, uh, and I'm glad Tommy survived, too. Right. When Tommy pops up, you're, and they're, they're excited, too. Uh, so they get the ring. Final song in the movie is called uh, Angel Band. Angel right? Band. And this is, uh, they make it very obvious this is the end of the hero's journey, because uh, I think fucking Everett even says, my, my adventuring days are over, or behind me, or something like that. Uh, so he's gotten his wife, he's got, you know, his six kids or however many fucking kids he's got. And uh, this song plays just a nice, it's a nice song to end everything on. You know, they walk over these train tracks. The Which is symbolic. Done. Yes, and we, we even see the guy, that we man with no at, name. At the beginning of the movie. And yep, he was he singing the song too as he was going by. Yep. You can hear, hear his voice in the background. So the, the hero's journey is complete. Okay. Yeah, what a perfect song because Angel, ba- like... You're uh, carry me away on your snow white wings to my immortal home. Mm-hmm. Such a perfect way to end the movie. Another hymn. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you said, because he found his fortune, which his fortune was his family. But we should say also, uh, he got the wrong ring. Because, yeah. you know, look. Uh, she I, said, I, I thought it was in there. Yeah. And then he goes, 
sweetheart, that ring is at the bottom of, you know, I think he says like 40,000 feet of water or something. She goes, I don't care if it's 90,000 feet. I didn't cause that tidal wave. Which I could say something derogatory, but I won't. (laughs) I'm going to be nice. But look, we've all been in this situation where, and and this is also, I love that it ends with he got the wrong ring because this is is the Coen brothers taking Homer and adding a little bit of reality to it because it's like, yeah, he won, but he's still going to have someone nagging the shit out of him. Just like, well, you didn't get the right ring. Uh, So yeah, so he didn't get the right ring, but they're together. They'll stay together. And now he's in the Soggy Bottom Boys. Soggy Bottom Boys are going to be big. We should also say that uh, the way that Everett ended up in prison was for practicing law with no license. Yes. He had a printed license. Yeah. And he's kind of like a, a smooth-talking, silver-tongued devil the whole movie. For yeah. sure. Yeah, because he's the planner. He's the he's the guy doing all the thinking. But sometimes we see he... he Wants to explain things before he knows what the fuck he's talking about. And I don't think we find out why Pete went to jail, but I know Delmar said he held up a Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. Because when he was done getting baptized, he said, uh, oh, he goes. He said he got saved. Yeah. And then uh, he's like, he's like, uh, the preacher done washed that away when he goes holding up the Piggly Wiggly. And Everett goes, I thought you said you were innocent of that crime. And he's like, I lied. And the preacher done washed that away too. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's a great movie. I mean, again, it's. It's one of, if not my favorite, Coen Brothers movie. I'd have to say Big Lebowski has to be my favorite, but yeah. this is probably second. I like when they go, um, I mean, I like when they go totally, I like when they go dark with like Fargo, but it still has some humor. I feel like they just always need to do, they need a little bit of satire. I enjoy them better when they got a little bit of satire thrown in. And, and, and it's a, a bright and sunny story. You know what I mean? This, this whole story, there's moments of darkness in it. But it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. It's a feel-good yeah. movie. Oh, and also I forgot to ask a question. Uh, when they darken their faces at night and then they're at the KKK rally, everyone thinks they are not white. Right. They are black. Is this a case of blackface? Will Oh Brother Where Art Thou get canceled one day? That's a good question. Now, I will say, usually in cases of blackface, uh, I don't fall on any side of the matter except let art just exist the way it exists. Uh, but I, I would never comment on them. This one I would defend because it is just the ultimate satire. You know yeah. what I mean? That they unknowingly ran into this situation. Right. And now they're just suddenly like black guys, but they are trying to help a black. It's exactly. Just, it's just so fucking ridiculous. You I can tie I mean? this back to the first Man of Science, Man of Faith episode, Teddy oh, Perkins. Right. Oh, well, whiteface. <laughs> whiteface. But you know how we didn't know what that thing was? He was wearing that. Uh, confederate hat and he scribbled it out to say you mad yeah the whole point of that was because he was saying oh uh basically what i got from it and this was like long after we did this episode because for the longest time i was trying to figure it out it's that he was saying that he can do like donald glover he's like it's different when a black guy does white face than when a white guy does black face. oh yeah that makes absolute sense yeah that makes so it was sense. a troll yeah yeah but I, but that's why i'll say like this is a troll too because the joke is not that they're doing blackface because they didn't even know they, they were literally just putting shoe polish on because they're like this is how we'll hide in the night yeah and then they just unknowingly found like <laughs> hundreds of races <laughs> and their in black robes. friend was being killed like yeah. i love that it just reaches the level of just absolute absurdity yeah but who knows i mean today people could you know context doesn't really matter today but i imagine if that happened the coen brothers would just never say anything about it no whatever 
whatever. So anyway, I love this movie. Great fucking movie. George Clooney, maybe George Clooney's best. Um, John Turturro. Everyone's just doing great work. John Goodman. It's a great film, great cast, great fucking soundtrack. I feel like this movie is going to be remembered 50, 100 years from now. Absolutely. I would say it's in my top five for sure. Damn. Oh, wow. Yeah. It'd be up there for me too. I mean, it's just a great movie to rewatch. It puts you in... Puts you in a good mood. And like you said, like, if this is considered a musical, this is one of the few good musicals there are, you know? Because there's a reason for every song. Which is funny, because then you listen to the soundtrack, and you're like, oh, shit, this is the movie. If you listen to the soundtrack after you watch the movie, you can just relive the movie in your head, but probably get completely new things from it. Yeah, when I was listening today, I noticed that. Just listening from top to bottom. I Like, re-picturing the movie in my head, and I was like, I know exactly what's happening right now. Yeah, because they they progress it very purposely. Um, But yeah, so the Coen Brothers... Oh, I should say, too, uh, before we go, Coen Brothers ain't together anymore, boys. Really? Separate. Split. Yeah, I think it's either Ethan or Joel... We'll have his first solo movie coming out at the end of the year. It's a Shakespeare movie. I was starring uh, fucking Denzel, Denzel, Hamlet, and, and his wife Frances McDormand from uh, Fargo. Yeah, they just said nothing serious, but they they're doing their own things now. Yeah, well, e- even this one, it was directed, I think, by uh, Joel yeah. Cohen and Ethan so that's Cohen a technicality producer. because they it was something to do with they can't both get credit for, for like the, both the unions. So they go like, well, just credit Joel with director and credit Ethan with producer. Interesting. So, and I think the way it goes down, I think, if I remember, I think Joel says he's the more technical one and then Ethan works with actors or, or something weird like that. But anyway, maybe we'll get twice as many Coen Brothers movies now that, I'm saying like good Coen Brothers movies yeah. now that they're uh, separate. But, you know, there'll never be another Oh Brother Where Art Thou. That's for sure. Never. No. Never. Never. I, I at one point in time, I, I think someone asked me like, "What if they made like a, a remake of it?" You know what I mean? Oh, it no. wouldn't be the same. It would never be It'd the be same. Horrible. Yeah, this was just a. It was a specific moment in time to right. do it too, because like folk music means something different to the world than it meant then. You Absolutely. Know what I mean? So it just what be year a did this movie. movie come out? I'm gonna look that up real quick. 2001, 2002. I'm gonna say 2001 off. The so top this was like right around 9/11. Yep. And this was one of the few feel-good movies that yeah. there were. You know what I mean? And again, the Coen brothers, they really, uh, they dig into, like, Americana. Like, again, like, the stuff that, you know, a lot of celebrated Hollywood filmmakers just ignore. You know what I mean? But they still tell, you know, dark stories. They get dark, but they, it's something that I think the average person can latch on to. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, the success of the soundtrack alone, it won... 2000. At least 2000. 2000. So it was so pre- actually right before, yeah. Yeah, pre-9-11. Yeah. But you got to think, then it was taking off the next year on DVD, plus the soundtrack yes. was taking off right after, because that's when it was winning awards and shit. That's when it won the Grammy. Oh, oh one it would have been. Mm-hmm. So right around 9-11. Yeah, I guess this was our feel-good 9-11 movie. You know? Feel-good movie. That's all we had. <laughs>